Uh, hi, everyone. It's James Baker here, and today I have an amazing guest. We're going to talk about some of the stuff we usually talk about, how the U.S. taxes or doesn't tax non-residents with U.S. companies, um, things that are changing in different online industries, Amazon, um, you know, selling courses and all that stuff. And, and I have Peter Paulson with me today. He is also an international tax expert and one of my favorite people to ask questions to when I, when I get stumped on a tax question, he always has a good answer for me. So thanks for being here today, uh, Peter. I'm always happy to have you uh, do some content with me. Thanks, thanks, Jim. And, and you are my, my favorite international tax professional. There are tens of millions of people outside the United States, individuals doing business with US customers online. And I think when these people approach you uh, and come on your channel, for example, they're concerned about taxes and they're concerned about liability and they're concerned about getting paid. And I like the way you cut through that uh, fog really and help them understand what it takes. So in a sense, you're, you're making the dreams come true. They have, they have <laughs> products, they have services, they have trading they want to do on exchanges and you show them, you build them the bridge. Yeah. And I think a lot of people really appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to help. I think it's uh, super interesting, and YouTube has been a cool format too. Um, and the way I've been doing it is taking calls with people and just answering their questions. I've been able to talk to entrepreneurs from all kinds of different countries and places. I learn a lot about their laws and how they do business. But it all comes down to you know the principles that we're going to talk about and how they're uh, enforced, uh, both by the companies they're working with and by the U.S. government. And then I, I like to get to the basics of that. And I know we're going to talk a lot more in this conversation about like the big picture stuff, which is very helpful. Uh, but but I like I like to also push a lot on the calls that I have about the main ideas to get paid, like for <laughs> the entrepreneurial aspect of it, too, because like you don't have to if you don't make any money, you don't have to worry about paying taxes. That's always the case. So mm -hmm. uh, so I like to have people like not because because people dwell on this like I, I don't shouldn't start I'm going to pay too much in taxes I'm always like no start sell make money let's talk about taxes let's work and my videos have all the information you need or you can be a private client and I do that too and that's uh fun for me also so um where, where are we starting here Peter what, what are we jumping into first well you know and I and I want to like pick up on your videos because I feel like a fly on the wall when I watch your videos talking to these people it's like there's a tremendous amount of of kind of honesty and and uh, personal information being shared, which I think is great as an instruction for for you know the tens of millions of people that aren't on the phone with you but want to learn. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, it's interesting to me that there are so there's so much diversity as far as the ways people are making money. They're selling products or they're developing apps. They're providing content like on YouTube right here. They're doing affiliate marketing uh, services. They're profiting from crypto. They're day trading stocks. And so you've got these, uh, you know, this incredible um, array of different types of activities, but your calls all end up kind of a lot in the same place. It says, believe it or not, you don't owe income taxes. And I wonder, Jim, is that a surprise to a lot of people given their expectations when they first get on the phone with you? As I've made more and more videos, it's kind of less of a surprise. I had a call yesterday with a guy from Romania. He's like, I watched all your videos. I know I don't have to pay any taxes, but I want to confirm some things with you and how I'm doing it. So uh, as I guess as the, the channel becomes more mature, I've been doing these videos for like two years that, um, you know, people are going to start watching more and, and really grasping that they really can do this and not pay taxes. And then uh, yeah, so it's, it's cool to see that people are figuring it out and a lot of them do it themselves and go along with it. I get a lot of clients from it. Obviously, I help a lot of people personally. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's still a surprise to a lot of people. They still like don't understand it really. And, you know, I, sometimes on the calls I say, look, I, ha I don't I, instead of going into great detail, here's a video you can watch on that I made on the channel that talks about the code sections and case laws or whatever. So, yeah, it's 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 fun. It's different every time. And everyone's from a different country, too. And they all have different expectations based on what they're used to in their country. So it's uh, yeah, it's like that all the time. And and honestly, if, if all it was was just talking to people about their tax liability, you get to the end of the phone call where there's no tax liability. Jim, why do I need you? But I know that you also help people set up LLCs. You help people 
uh, open bank accounts. You help people fill out Form W-8 uh, or W-9. And then you help people fill out the information reporting. If you've got a U.S. LLC, uh, then you're going to have to file some information or get knocked with a whole bunch of taxes. So it's kind of a scoop to nuts. I mean, are, are there are there things that a foreign investor uh, coming into the country needs that um, are, are more difficult in a sense? Are there certain types of businesses that just are more challenging uh, for, for you or, or the people involved? Sure. I mean, the most popular and probably the most challenging thing is and this, and they all know it is making dropshipping work because of all mm -hmm. of the uh, payment processors don't like dropshippers. The websites get canceled. The business is just a challenging business, and it's really like you're you're kind of selling other people's products. It's almost a marketing business, but that's that has the most issues. For everything else, we can kind of, I've 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 done enough um, through like my private private client services, done enough bank account applications and forms and navigated things for people that I can we can find solutions to most most problems in in terms of banking and payment processing and stuff but dropshippers do sometimes have issues just because of the the nature of the business all the chargebacks if you sell products that aren't amazing or if they get there too late people charge backs and the processors will cancel you and as a non-resident you have kind of limited options for payment processors in the U.S. there's uh there's only a couple that'll really work with you and Stripe's the, the biggest one. Yeah, and we did a video. Um, it's called Secrets of the IRS. I'm not sure if I gave away too many IRS secrets in that video, but it was a, a fairly, uh, you know, deep dive on Amazon FBA. And I think when you talk about taxation in the U.S. Uh, for, for non-residents, foreign people, then inventory in the U.S. is kind of the third rail. You know, there's this criteria that we talked about extensively in the video of having a U.S. trader business, if you're providing a service or trading on Robinhood or uh, Coinbase, staking currency on Coinbase, you're never in the U.S. You're not going to have that, that U.S. trader business. If you have inventory in the U.S., then all of a sudden you've got to be concerned. That's what we talked about uh, with respect to the Amazon FBA sellers. So I, I agree that when you're talking about Amazon FBA or Walmart uh, or uh, uh, Shopify, you know, then all of a sudden it's kind of going into that next next level. And and I think the discussions probably end up being a little bit more complicated. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the biggest, like you said, the third rail is the inventory issue, you know, and so far that we've, we've discussed how it works with Amazon, they, they consider having control of inventory, not being physical presence for the, the individual who's selling on Amazon. But if you, I have it sometimes like a, a person uses their uncle to hold all their inventory or something like that. And I'm like, I tell them that that's probably not the way to do it. You know, that's a much higher risk way of doing it. And a quick sidebar, uh, if, if my, my team uh, editing this, uh, I'll link that video of, of Peter's down below, the IRS secrets video, because um, Peter does, his channel is really great. And uh, Frost, uh, and you guys have a great channel and a really technical videos. A lot of mine are more conversational. You guys have technical videos and I, I actually share them with clients too, especially the Puerto Rico ones. And I'll check out the Cyrus Secrets. Well, I think we ought to leave that in there, Jim. That's some good content right there. But getting back to that video, what's interesting is that I made the point in that video that Amazon um, is accepting this form W-8 BEN, which is used by, by people that don't have a trader business. So if you have a trader business in the U.S., the person that's sending you the money uh, should be getting a W-8 form ECI, which is effectively yeah. connected income, which is part of the terminology of having a U.S. taxable presence. And I made the point in that video that Amazon is not um, collecting Form W-8 ECI is not requiring for W-8 ECI, even though Amazon is holding your inventory in the U.S. And so in a sense, this very large company that takes its taxes very seriously has kind of made a determination that you holding inventory in the U.S. in their warehouses is not um, going to throw you into uh, U.S. trader business. After we recorded that video, I had someone reach out to me and said, I've been trying to get Seller Central to uh, give me a Form W-8 ECI, and I can't get them to do it. They'll just take that W-8 BEN. So 
I don't know whether, you know, we were talking about kind of a thoughtful exercise that Amazon went through or just some, you know, filters in the seller central. And then you mentioned, uh, as we were talking about this video, you had some recent experience with Walmart uh, requesting a form WAECI from one of your clients. Yeah, I had, uh, well, that's, that's, before we go there, why, why was he wanting a WAECI? Well, I, th I think, you know, that's a very good question, but um, I think it had to do with his home country I mean, and you told how he was court. taxed in the U.S. or if he was taxed in the U.S., he could avoid home country tax. So it had yeah. to, and I think that's a really important thing because we talk about how in most cases the U.S. is not going to tax your activity, but, you know, you obviously have tax issues in your foreign country and that should come into play as well. Sure. Sure. And what I talk to, and, and that's big for me and my clients in Mexico a lot, because Mexico is kind of aggressive with the taxes. And I have a lot of Mexican clients who use corporations. You just pay tax here instead. And oh man, I could, I have a million questions as I, as I talk more for you, but um, let's stay back. Let's stay on topic. So yeah, the corporation would probably work for him then instead if he can't get the WADCI. But yes, I have a client who signed up for Amazon and Walmart and he's a non-resident with an LLC. And I have other clients who use LLCs in Walmart, but I don't help. I haven't helped them with the registration process, and it's possible they're just giving W nines to Walmart anyways, um, so that Walmart will just process their paperwork faster, and they don't know what what's going on anyway. So it's possible that's what people are doing. But this guy, I told him like give him a W eight ban, and he said they wouldn't accept it. He sent me the email from Walmart saying that right now they're not currently accepting this, but mm -hmm. they have plans to do it in the future. So they only were doing W-8 ECI forms. And he's like, should I open two LLCs and one for Walmart, one for this? And, and I'm, I didn't really, I was, I'm still kind of thinking about it. Like, I don't think, uh, here's a question for you, Peter. There you go. So should, if, if he's doing a W-8 ECI for one and a W-8 BEN uh, for the other and he uses them both with the same LLC, does that make it all subject to tax? Like how, how was he doing there? Well, the reporting forms don't dictate your tax outcome. And in fact, let's talk about another tax court case that got settled or, or a tax controversy that got settled in tax court just last month. And it was an Amazon seller in the U.S. And this Amazon seller, according to the facts of the case, would go on um, eBay or go to Walmart and they would buy product and then they would resell it through Amazon. I'm not sure how anybody makes a lot of money doing that, but that person got a 1099K reporting $29,000 of gross proceeds. That individual uh, thought he was under the threshold to have to report the income. And then he realized, you know, oh, whoops, that was a mistake. And the court made it very clear that just because you get a reporting form or don't get a reporting form, that does not dictate the tax outcome. Your tax outcome is dictated by what the law says that you have to do. And what I find interesting about that case is here, here's the IRS, you know, very constrained on resources, and they pick a fight with a guy that has $29,000 of total revenue, not profit, total revenue. And the other, uh, you know, somewhat sad thing, certainly for this guy sad, was that because he didn't think he was subject to U.S. tax on the sales or resales of those products, he didn't keep any records of what he bought and when he bought it. And because he didn't have those records, the IRS disallowed all his deductions and taxed him on the entire $29,000 of revenue and then imposed penalty as well Did for he? you know disregard of the rules. And Jim, we talked last time, and I think you make a very clear point on a lot of your videos that if you're a foreign person and you don't file a U.S. tax return uh, for whatever reason, and then the IRS later decides you have a U.S. trader business, you can lose your deductions and get taxed on gross income. Sure. And I, and that's, that's a great point. It's all, it's, it's a lot about the facts and circumstances of the case. Like what, what you're really doing more than like what you're saying in the W8s and things like that. So uh, yeah, you make a point and it's crazy that, so he had to have challenged this and taken it to court himself. So he spent yeah. money, he spent money to get an attorney and take it to tax court, which is crazy enough on its own too. Cause I've seen, I've had clients in similar situations, get a 1099 K the IRS asked them and we told them that he has no U S trader business and this is what he's doing. And this is where his money is. And 
and this is how it's, he's operating. And they said, okay, fine. And they passed on. I don't, I don't know how they, how did they determine he had a U.S. trader business in this case? Well, this was a U.S. person. Oh, so he's a U.S. person. So this I mean, person filed the W-9 and got a Form 1099-K, which is kind of interesting because there are a lot of people outside the United States and Mexico or whatever, they're getting 1099-Ks, but they don't really map to anything, right? Because most of these uh, foreign people don't have U.S. Social Security numbers or tax identification numbers. Yes. Um, and that's true if they use a disregarded U.S. LLC, they'll still provide their Per, or they should provide their personal information. If they use a multi-member US LLC, then they become a partnership and that partnership have, has its own personality and should file a form W-9. And we talk about that in the last video. I don't know if there's anything more you want to say about that right now. Uh, yeah, just the, it's the, the, the hurdle with filing the protective 1040 NR is that you have to apply for the ITIN. And then there's like, it's not easy to do by yourself. You have to probably work with somebody just because it's annoying and uh, complicated and it takes forever to apply for iTunes. So I do it for many of my clients and uh, actually for all my private clients, we get iTunes and, you know, then we can file protective returns and we can do all that. But yeah, you're right. I don't know. So this guy was a U.S. person. So it's a little bit uh, different. It shows the example that the IRS will go after you, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't necessarily, um, uh, comment on the U.S. trader business aspect because as a U.S. person, you pay taxes anyways. But that's that's um, you know something to consider, and it is a, it's a great example of a. I can't believe that he he took it all the way to court instead of just like seven, yeah, it's like a four thousand dollar balance. <laughs> but but it does show the IRS will go after the little guy. I think it's different in the context of uh, foreign people because uh, you know it can be harder to find, and I'm not suggesting that you know you play auto roulette, but it it can be. Uh, you know, like boiling the ocean, how does the IRS kind of find someone who's doing business, has a trader business in the U.S. that's not necessarily filing anything in the U.S.? Uh, interestingly, the IRS, there was a report issued about an IRS effort to do exactly that several years ago. And this, this is probably instructive to where this area is going and the possible use of artificial intelligence. But Several years ago, the IRS opened up uh, an effort, you know, it wasn't a campaign, but it was an effort to try to identify foreign corporations that were doing business in the United States. And they, they looked at three types of documents. They looked at U.S. reporting forms. Um, uh, when I say U.S. reporting forms, I mean, they looked at like sales tax collections and other uh, forms that had been filed with respect to the sales of the product in the U.S. Number two, uh, they looked at um, customs uh, declarations, and and number three, they looked at bank transfers because the, the United States has a tremendous amount of information on uh, your banking transfers, and so they looked at those three areas, and they came up with kind of a between between the three areas, they found like fifteen. They picked fifteen companies from one category of information, fifteen from another. So they had a total of about fifty companies. And then what they did is they sent letters to these 50 companies. And what happened is most of the companies just tore the letter up and threw it away, didn't respond. And these are people outside the United States. And the IRS really doesn't have offices outside the United States anymore. So it's all by correspondence. And it's not even by email. A lot of times it's all by snail mail. So uh, that was, I'm sure, frustrating for the IRS. So they couldn't even get a lot of people to respond. And some other people responded and say, well, we don't have a office in the U.S. We don't have a trader business in the U.S. And at the end of the day, uh, the report says the IRS just kind of dropped it, just kind of said this, this is, you know, not where we thought this was going. It's too difficult. And that, that was with respect to big companies who have like a lot of sales and it's probably worth uh, the effort to pursue them. If you're talking about a foreign individual that's selling on Amazon FBA, I mean, first of all, the IRS is going to be always a couple of years. Um, you have to you have to like file a tax return, and that tax return has to be processed and accepted, and then the, it has to be selected for examination. And so you're always going to be talking about a couple of years down the road before the IRS really kind of gears up on you. And it's interesting with Amazon FBA, they talk about having around four million active sellers, but then they also say they get about two and a half million new sellers every year. So there's obviously a lot of churn. There are a lot of people coming. There are a lot of people going out of Amazon. 
And if it takes a couple of years, a lot of those people are probably gone anyway, right, yeah. from Amazon. And the people that are there, if the IRS gets a favorable judgment, they're just going to end up with a bunch of nutritional supplements out of a warehouse in California because there's no nothing to garnish. There's no real way to collect. They're not going to go to China and try to squeeze, you know, 5,000 bucks out of some some guy who they think has a trader business in the US. Yeah. I'm not I'm not saying play audit roulette. I'm just saying that that difficulty really of of pursuing all of these claims might be the reason Congress made the rules in the first place as, you know, in a sense um, investor friendly as they did because the US has always tried to have investor friendly rules to attract foreign capital to have people buy US dollars and I think that this all really uh, connects itself. Yeah, it certainly does. And um, one other thing I wanted to comment there, um, I'm looking at the notes that you had. It's, I think it, it's, it's gonna, for anything to change is the IRS, it's gonna come down to them changing the withholding uh, rules for Amazon, making them start to withhold taxes or make doing stuff like that. And, and you, you mentioned before that sales taxes, as well, like it's a tax, but it's not a tax on the foreign seller. It's a tax on the U.S. consumer if done right. So it's not even a, there's no money coming from the profits of these uh, non-residents who are selling stuff and making money from the U.S. market. There's no tax revenues at all. And it's really a, an, an interesting dilemma on how it's going to be resolved from the IRS standpoint. And you mentioned, uh, and, and I think that the only way to do it would be like from Amazon standpoint. That's how, why I tell people that, look, Amazon's not withholding taxes. The IRS has a much better chance of making them withhold something than getting you to pay your taxes after the fact. So, um, where, where you had another comment about this, about the, um, um, the withholding taxes and how it's, how, um, oh, I'm looking for the notes. Yeah. You YouTube, you're talking about YouTube. So let's, yeah, you, let's, you, YouTube I, I is absolutely right. Yeah. The U.S. Uh, tax authorities, because we are talking about tens of millions of people, not just on Amazon, but, you know, across all of these platforms. Um, we're talking about a lot of people and the IRS really needs to offload some of their tax collection and, and tax reporting uh, identification of people who might have a tax liability, offload that to okay. the uh, marketplaces, to the um, you know, like YouTube's and and to the exchanges, like if, if, you're if they're going about Coinbase, but, or, but if they're going to at all, if they're going to do that, that's how they have to do it. But uh, one other thing, I, I sorry to interrupt, is that the IRS already knows about so much uncollected tax debt from U.S. companies and U.S. businesses. There's like trillions of dollars every year. Yeah, that goes uncollected. So it's, you know, it's not it's not like it's it's much easier to get that than it would be to get money from some guy in China, like you said. So it's uh, that's something I wanted to add first. <laughs> No, you're right. And, and so let's look at YouTube. YouTube changed their reporting this year uh, with respect to foreign content providers. So uh, pick a country, you know, if you're putting out, let's just say you're in Korea and you're talking about boy bands and BTS and you got a pretty, pretty good channel. It's got a lot of viewers and YouTube has changed their uh, withholding tax policy to effectively treat payments to you for your content as royalties and not services, which I don't entirely get, but okay. And if it's a royalty, what they do is they will withhold taxes. They'll look at the Korean U.S. treaty and they'll withhold taxes under the U.S. treaty rate for royalties based on the percentage of U.S. viewers to total viewers. And then they'll take out taxes and and then you might be able to get them back under korean law or you know tax law under foreign tax credit but that's a movement really that i find surprising and i think a lot of people find surprising that the uh you wonder if the irs has kind of like been in a dialogue with them uh as far as the uh proper treatment i'm not i'm not saying youtube would like go hard the other direction and try to create taxes for the u.s government they're trying to follow the rules uh, another another case is Coinbase. Coinbase uh, changed their reporting uh, provisions. Uh, for, they used to provide, uh, I forget what they provided, but it went to a 1099K. I think they used to provide a 1099B, which is like proceeds from the sale of securities, and that wasn't quite right. So they went to a 1099K, which is payments. Um, but that was to U.S. people. 
And if you look on their website, they have a tax site essentially. And it says with respect to foreign uh, account holders, we're not giving you anything. We're not sending you anything, which suggests that they're treating uh, these payments for staking and lending uh, as uh, services. And that's a whole complicated area. I've, I've done videos uh, on our channel on the tax treatment of crypto transactions, but there is a lot going on in a sense behind the scenes with respect to the proper reporting, proper collection of taxes, because there's no other way to do it. When you're the IRS and you have like 60, 70,000 total employees and you have tens of millions of foreign people now making money off U.S. customers and you think some of them might owe tax, you want to try to um, spread that, 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 you know, like burden, responsibility, effort out uh, among as, as many people as you can. You try to uh, put it on the computer system, you know, use artificial intelligence, try to match information. In this that's case, what, I was yeah. talking about with this uh, Amazon FBA seller in the U.S. Uh, in the court case, they said the IRS used this program called an automated matching program to match the 1099K to the 1040. So uh, there are uh, leaps that the IRS is making with respect to the use of artificial intelligence that I think will become relevant in this area. But at the same time, as we've talked about, this area where you have foreign people making money online from U.S. customers is pretty taxpayer friendly to begin with. Yeah. And to jump back about the YouTube thing, I have, I have a client who does really well on videos from Facebook and from YouTube. And Facebook doesn't do the withholding like that. And YouTube does. And that's an interest. It's still it's disconnected all the time. And then also they have um, like what's to stop somebody from opening a partnership instead of a, an LL, a single member LLC and giving a W-9 and stopping the withholding and then just not withholding from the partnership level because they disagree with the IRS tax treatment that it's a royalty and that they pay management fees out of the partnership. There's unlimited things you can do to kind of flip yeah. it around. I mean, to, with some limitations, if you make $100 million, you know, you can't, you can't play too much. But most people doing this, you know, even if you make two million dollars a year it's still immaterial kind of to the irs like what they're looking for and everything you know and their their budgets and collections so that's those are two things that like it's so this it's just so unclear and there's so many ways around things and there's different alternatives like the the client my client is just kind of slowed down youtube is just doing more on facebook instead and he also has a partnership with one percent owner being a hong kong company and you know there's there's all all the stuff there but and then re regarding the crypto stuff you're talking about the U.S. apparently knows how to handle it uh, with the U.S. people. Now they have to deal with um, foreigners doing the same stuff. It's it's a disaster. There's no way they're gonna like it's not it's not like most of the crypto stuff's not taxable to non-residents anyways if they're outside the U.S. Yeah, and I, I think you compare that with like FERPTA. So I think most people know that if you're a foreign person and you invest in U.S. real estate uh, and you sell the real estate, that's a capital gain. And generally, like if you're in Robinhood and you're selling, no matter how much you're trading, you're not going to have a U.S. trader business, and you're not going to be taxed on those capital gains uh, with respect to buying and selling stocks or crypto. But in the case of real estate, they changed the rules back in the 80s, and they are now imposing uh, taxes on this. Well, now, I mean, it's been going on for quite a while where if you're a foreign person and you own real estate uh, in the United States, uh, and you sell that real estate, you're going to have to pay tax on that gain if you have a gain. And the purchaser of the real estate, whether they be U.S. or foreign, has the obligation to withhold that tax. And the thing is, if somebody doesn't do what they're supposed to do, there is property in the U.S. the IRS can assess, you know, and can collect off of. So there's collateral for that tax liability. So that all kind of works pretty well in the U.S. can raise a lot of revenue from the taxation of real estate that up until the 80s wasn't wasn't taxed. You wonder if they can do kind of a FERP to 2.0 or crypto if they don't like crypto. But the situation is crypto is virtual. It's not physical. How can the IRS, in a sense, enforce? I guess they could go to Coinbase and make them turn over your account, but that's got its problems. Um, well, the way they and enforce then, the, the the real quick, the way they enforce the FERPTA stuff is by making the title companies and the buyers responsible for the taxes if they don't withhold. So right, so that's how they enforce it. It's it, there's not an equivalent of that in 
in Coinbase and it's not or like regarding cryptocurrencies, but don't you see them the same as stocks where they're in terms of the tax treatment, they're not U.S. sourced um, assets, so they shouldn't be subject to U.S. tax, right? No, I think that's right. The IRS said back in 2014, this is in our videos, that crypto is property. And when you're just talking about buying and selling crypto, it's capital gains uh, the same way that you would buy and sell a security. That's right. Uh, yeah. There are some kind of nuances when it comes to other ways to make money off crypto through DeFi that ha can have, uh, you know, actually subject to a, a recent uh, filing by a taxpayer who claimed that they should not be taxed on essentially staking their uh, altcoins uh, and then get like a return on, on the staking of altcoins or lending of altcoins. And they said that that new coin that's created, the token that I receive from that activity uh, shouldn't be currently taxable because it's like me baking a cake. I'm not taxed when the cake comes out of the oven. So that's that's kind of a whole separate area of interesting uh, controversies. Yeah, uh, the IRS is absolutely keeping busy these days. And you know, the administration, uh, we can talk about kind of what's in the cards with respect to uh, what the current administration is looking at from the standpoint of raising trillions of dollars of new revenue and closing that tax gap so what's what is um i'm looking at state taxation you you put some great notes together um reporting changes iris audit campaigns penalty notices perfect um yeah so let's talk about some of the biden administration proposals then we'll jump back into state taxation but tell me um tell me a little bit about what what you've researched about the the new uh proposals that they're going to do and, and the likelihood of these getting passed in your opinion? Really good question. Um, what's kind of interesting at the highest level, there is this effort going on to allow countries to uh, begin to assess taxes. When I say begin, some countries are already doing this, but countries uh, essentially have consumers who are effectively eyeballs, who are watching YouTube videos or buying things from Amazon and essentially creating revenue for the marketplace or revenue for the the you know content well the content uh, uh, person who who makes money off the content via advertising or or some other way. But anyway, there's this effort to uh, begin to tax that digital activity, uh, even though somebody like an Amazon might not have a distribution center in that country or Facebook has no office in that country. Uh, or so, YouTube. So but, let me let me interject with an example. So let's say mm -hmm. my um, in in a year my channel is uh, insane and I have uh, five hundred thousand a million mm -hmm. uh, daily views from people in India on my videos, and I'm making all my ad revenue from eyeballs in India. Is that like what you're referring to, right? Yeah, it's kind of like a. I mean, there can be direct and indirect taxes. You're more likely to have kind of a sales tax type problem before you have an income tax problem, but. Even India, because you picked a country that's actually since, you know, four or five years ago had a fairly robust tax system focused on digital revenues. Yeah. There is, there are usually thresholds, Jim. Um, you're a mega content provider, so you might hit those thresholds. <laughs> but there are a lot of, you know, people that are out there not, not getting, um, you know, sufficient views, not having sufficient revenues, not selling sufficient amounts of products to trip the obligations to register and report. Um, but more countries are getting on that bandwagon. The United States is a little behind there because they've spent really the last few years trying to, um, I, I got to watch my words here, but they haven't been enthusiastic about uh, ha having a tax regime that taxes digital commerce because a lot of the businesses that make a lot of money off of digital commerce are based in the U.S., yeah. And so they've been concerned and remain concerned that all of these foreign countries are just going to knock a piece off of our, our big tech companies. And that's where it's going to begin and end. And they're trying to keep that so, uh, from happening. So Google uh, so pays taxes in, in India and they deem as Indian source revenues and they get a tax credit in the U.S., less taxes paid in the U.S., right? Yeah, I mean, that's the idea. It's not clear right now that you get a credit for those types of taxes. But I mean, I, I think that even the U.S. government has said like that should be. Well, in, in treaty, sense, in creditable. treaty countries, they would have to you you would use the treaty to make a determination between the countries about the sourcing of the income, especially in, in treaty countries. Right. So there shouldn't be double taxation in those countries. You just have to 
contact the competent authorities and make it get a determination made about the sourcing, right? Yeah, and it's really pay me, pay me here, pay me there kind of thing. I mean, I yeah. think that's the way it's looking at looked at. But um, I mean, some well, look, let's not get into all the nitty gritty of how you know companies like Amazon and others manage their tax liabilities. But this could be a bit painful for some of the large U.S. tech companies. So, so the IRS is not the IRS, but um, the U.S. government's really been pushing back, dragging their feet, whatever you want to call it. Now they're embracing it. Now it really opens the door for the U.S. to begin to assert those same kinds of taxes against foreign, uh, foreign individuals or foreign people, foreign companies, foreign individuals. To date, really, they're focusing on the largest companies in the world. So they talked about the top 100 companies in the world and how this would affect them and nobody else. So by the time you get down to that individual who is selling $29,000 a year on Amazon, we're a long way off from that. So I think despite this discussion, people are hearing about, about a global push to tax digital transactions. Um, I, I think that this actually could be favorable for the kind of smaller uh, per, you know, seller, smaller service provider, because they are focused on the biggest companies. And if everybody you know, really needs to conform, and every, every country's got the right to apply their own laws. They don't have to you know, like come right up to the bar and, and buy into what everybody else is doing. So India can keep its rules and the US can come up with a different set of rules. But for the most part, if people are gravitating toward looking at this as a large company deal, I think maybe we're further away from trying to kind of move this uh, downstream into the rank and file, you know, the masses, the 10 million uh, people uh, yeah. that are making money on, you know, various ways in the U.S. Yeah, out of the 10 million, you're talking like 10, like maybe like 5,000 are really making that money like that where it matters. I don't, you know, like where it's really mo money moving like the, like in, in this scale that, that you're talking about. So the majority of the people kind of fall under the radar, like you've been saying, and it's it's uh, yep. interesting. And, and what I think is hilarious, I don't know, hilarious or ironic, whatever the <laughs> word is, but is that as everyone's trying to step up and collect these taxes, this whole digital, untrackable digital currency thing is happening at the same time. So if you want to be fun or sneaky with how you get paid or whatever and be off the radar, there's more ways than ever to get paid and have uh, stuff of value that is digital and pretty uh, they can track it, but at a, at scale they can track it. But at lower scales, it's really like a tedious exercise, and like it's not worth it. So, it's, I think that's I think that's kind of fun uh, that it's all happening at the same time. It's like uh, there's so much going on right now in this space. Well, you've hit another uh, really good point, Jim, and I know you've talked about the uh, Disclosure Act, Beneficial Ownership Disclosure Act for, oh, yeah. for LLCs, and how if you have if you're a foreign person that's set up an LLC now uh, people are going to know who you are, right? The because that has to be disclosed. Yeah. Yeah. And on top of that, the administration's proposals would require banks to report all inflows and outflows of payments. Uh, so if you are, and many people are, particularly on Amazon, many people have set up LLCs to have a U.S. bank account to get paid into the U.S. bank account in dollars, and then they move the money via transfer-wise or however they want to get it back into their home country, those bank account transfers could now be reported. So it's not just getting a 1099K from the marketplace, but uh, you know that's number one. Number two, now having your LLC essentially disclose your ownership and now having bank transfers reported uh, to the IRS, when I do that, think that makes it easier in the context of artificial intelligence to begin to connect more of the dots. And when does that start with the, the, IR, the, the bank sharing all the transaction information with the IRS? Has that already started? Oh, no, no. It's, it's part of the proposals, which were in the Green Book. Yeah. And even the Green Book, 114 pages later, there's still an incredible lack of detail about how all of this would work. You know, for example, if they apply these bank transfer rules to U.S. bank accounts, do they also have to apply them to foreign bank accounts uh, to keep everybody from just running over and opening a foreign bank account? Not that well, that's easy, but it's, it's in not. a sense, it becomes FATCA 2.0. 
you know, yeah, they got to get kind of everybody on the program to make it effective. That that can be difficult. It's it's insane. FATCA is already a nightmare in terms of the reporting with the correspondent and the Patriot Act too. I, I did my uh, my anti money laundering license, so I learned a lot about how this stuff works. And uh, the uh, the Patriot Act gives the U.S. like autonomy over any correspondent bank that's uh, in a foreign country, so they could just take funds from these banks and because they're wow. course because they're correspondent banks with U.S. banks and because you know the U.S. banks are I think some of the biggest banks i know i know that the, in other countries the banks are more stable and i guess more like less likely to fail because a lot of banks fail here the big banks here don't fail uh the government doesn't let them we learned in like 2007 right so um it's it's just crazy that the amount of information that's out there and right now the government doesn't have immediate access to just everyone's banking records they have to like formally request it right it has to be like a it's not like they just have like look up somebody look in their bank they have to like ask for it right Jim, if they don't like you, there's a lot of information they can access. And I say that by reference to this book called Red Card. And it's a really fascinating book. Um, I, I, re I reference it in one of, my, one of my videos. And it talks about how the IRS and the FBI and Treasury FinCEN collaborated to effectively bring down a number of people involved with FIFA the professional soccer league so there was a fairly significant scandal and have been a series of scandals and the irs got and treasury got involved because they were you know like concerned about some of the bad actors or what they perceived to be bad actors and there were payments going from a bank account in central america to a bank account in the middle east and they were able to track those payments because they cleared through the u.s banking system yeah that's exactly so that what gave happens. them the reach to, to go out and identify payments that nobody ever thought that they would have access to. So there is an incredible amount of information, you know, the IRS can access to the extent that they are able to devote the types of resources, you know, in this yeah. collaborative effort with treasury and, and, uh, and, um, oh, but what you're saying is different though. When the corporate, it's a green book and the corporate transparency act thing all passes. Red book. The red, no, oh, but the green red book. book. Yeah, green book. <laughs> red book, green book. Yeah. So if the, the green book is just basically like the proposed uh, corporate transparency act laws, right? So if that all passes, then this it's different from the IRS knowing, like having access to look stuff up from them right. having the the information integrated into their systems. Yeah, and the Corporate it's, Transparency Act, that, that's current law. That was passed. That is current law. The Treasury Department is ramping up the disclosure process and will become yeah. effective pretty quickly. I think it's effective um, Jan like January 1, 2022. And I think this year is all about figuring out how to implement it because I haven't made any more videos about it. I'm still waiting for more guidance yeah. on how people are actually going to do the filings because it's basically, I'm probably, I didn't, I'm not referencing it but it's like any company that has more than 25 percent foreign owners has to disclose the ownership of the company i don't know what the percentage but it's not very high so yeah. but and i do think th this is an important evolving area but yeah. what i want to communicate to uh your 10 tens of millions of followers who are doing business in the u.s in various ways is that the underlying in my view the underlying policy of giving you know foreign investors in the u.s in the u.s markets online markets a light touch from the the standpoint of how the rules work and how much tax is imposed that that's not changing you know we are we are uh, as a country uh, looking to raise you know or the government's looking to raise the current administration's looking to raise trillions of dollars of taxes it is not on the backs of these foreign sellers yeah, uh, I don't think and, so. And so, I mean, that's the point I want to make that you can, you know, like I would expect, you know, the, the videos to continue to have the punchline. There's not going to be a tax liability on what you're doing, yeah. whether it's product selling, you know, without even, I mean, yeah. without drop shipping, that's a whole nother issue, right? Uh, it's, it's just a complicated business uh, because of the competition yeah. and everything. But uh, it's it's like take your focus from paying taxes, just move it to getting more clients, and that's what I tell everybody. I'm like, look, if you do it this way, yeah. and it's pretty straightforward. Like it's not like most people have to go out of their way to have effectively connected income because they're in their own country working online. Like, what are they going to do? Like, open an office here for no reason and just hire people? Like, most people don't even want to do that. Yeah, and I think how many um, how many court cases do you read about in your daily you know tax update that has to do with this determination of trader business or effectively connected income? 
Yes, it's not. I mean, there are a handful that people refer to, but in some cases, they're decades old. Yeah, I had a guy, um, I had a, I referenced the court case in one of my videos and he's like, the guy was like, you definitely have to pay, it was in the comments, it was fun. He was like, you definitely have to pay taxes, there's no way this is right. And I cited court, he's like, try citing a case that's not 60 years old. I'm like, there there aren't that many. I mean, that's my favorite one. <laughs> but yeah, I all, think the Inverworld, Inverworld uh, case is probably the most exhaustive discussion of trader business. Uh, Inverworld? Is, Inverworld, I-N-V-E-R-W-O-R-L-D. It's a, it's a uh, uh, securities firm, uh, brokerage, essentially. I don't know if it's truly a brokerage or not, but they were uh, had a U.S. office that was acting, in a sense, on behalf of the Mexican parent company. And they found that the Mexican parent company was involved in a U.S. trader business as a result of the activities of this subsidiary. And they go into an extensive discussion of the various factors in order to have a trader business or not have a trader business. And something else to say too, is, uh, as you know, whether it's Mexico or any other treaty country, the treaties actually up the bar on what it takes to have a US trader business. They essentially get rid of that term and they substitute in permanent establishment, which requires an even higher level of of activity in order yeah, to have that u.s trader business it's more so. specific it's less like the general code is kind of vague the the treaties just are more specific with more details and you can it's easier to make the determination on your own because of the treaty but um you know because they do provide that additional guidance so yeah, that's and, I, the, yeah. and the irs doesn't like like house to house fighting yeah <laughs> they don't like to go clear out a floor and then move up and clear out another floor it's just really hard when you're talking about trader business and how factual those cases are, it's just very hard to devote the resources on a sustainable basis to um, make cases. And as I said, when you finally do make your case, all you get at the end of the day is a, is a bunch of inventory or nutritional supplements or something out of a warehouse. And that's all you can like uh, enforce your, your collection against. I have another a quick question about um, just to get your opinion on it. We didn't plan to talk about this, but so I have I have clients that'll do like some kind of drop shipping. They'll use a U.S. corporation, but they'll basically pay themselves fees for managing the company, so the corporation doesn't have much profit at year end. Let's say they make two million dollars, and there's two guys, and they pay themselves each a million dollars of of profits from that company. Like like what are, what are the risks you see in doing that kind of thing? And and also and then I'll have an, a follow up quick follow up question for you. Do you like because I have people doing I have clients who do it that way instead of using the LLC because I think it's less risk. Yeah, I, I looked at that issue quite a few years ago when I was working in Dallas for, for one of the big four firms. And there was this idea that a foreign company could essentially have a contract manufacturing company or inventory management company in the U.S. And it really got down, in my view, to who controlled the ability to pull that inventory out of the warehouse. So you can you can assign somebody, and I think this may be part of the issue with Amazon, is that Amazon has really the exclusive right to put your inventory in any warehouse it wants to put it in, and it has the ability to pick it. You know, when it gets an order, it picks the inventory. And in fact, they make you maintain certain levels of inventory or they'll turn your lights out. And so it's really uh, at the discretion largely of Amazon to maintain the inventory, to pick the inventory. Well, you contrast, I, sorry. I, I'm referring more to like a per, uh, two foreign people, let's say uh, Canadians right. that live in Belize that have a U, they use a corporation instead of an LLC. And what they do is they pay themselves management fees or marketing fees because they run the company themselves and they do generate all the profits. And I, I think the issue there comes down to um, um, if they're being paid a fair or reasonable yeah. wage. Tran transfer pricing. Yeah, but what transfer I'm pricing. saying is yeah. that if you think about Emberworld and that trader business, if those foreign people have the ability to pick from the inventory of that U.S. warehouse, even though the U.S. warehouse is owned by another company, Ooh. I think that you can have a concern about uh, continuing to have exposure to U.S. trader business, even though you, in a sense, have quarantined away the physical ownership of the property, the physical maintenance of the property and the legal ownership of the property. If you have the ability to pick the inventory, that, that can still be a problem. If oh, you're, that's, that's a great point. So you're talking yeah. about like um, a drop shipper who's using a fulfillment center or a fulfillment house. If you have, 
if you can um, send them a batch and they and then you can order the batch to be sent back or whatever, and you have more control over it, then that still might that's a more risk. Sure, of course. Well, and we talked about we 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 had an example in our last video about an individual in Mexico, and we talked about whether they could keep product in a in the garage of their uncle in Denver, Colorado, and then fulfill out of that inventory. And I think that to the extent that an order comes in and the uncle says, I've got that order, I'll go ahead and fill it out of here. That's not going to cause a problem, in my view, for the foreign person, because the uncle is making the decision. He should get a fair payment, I suppose, for what he does. But uh, that's a decision being made by by the uncle in Denver in the U.S. who's already subject to tax. Whereas the foreign person, if the foreign person says, uncle, I just need you to hold that inventory in your garage. And I will tell you when I get an order and I will tell you to go to the post office and, um, you know, once a week and send all those orders out or however frequently you got to send them well, out. But that's, that's the easiest argument the IRS can make, though. And in, in, in any situation of fulfilling orders and inventory, that's the, obviously the highest risk of, of any option. But you're saying that even then, in the highest risk situation, you still can make an argument that he's not an employee, he's not a dependent agent, he's running his own business. And we've done this before with clients. We'll put together like a specific non-employment contract that says this person is making yeah. all the decisions and doing their own thing. So, you know, to minimize the risk. But I, I mean, clearly that would be selling direct from China is as a no-brainer, no U.S. source income. It's just coming. It's nothing there. But um, shipping to clients. But if you have any kind of fulfillment and use a family member, you're not paying them and stuff. And or even if you are, that's the highest risk. But you're saying it can still be navigated without paying taxes. And I think that's, uh, you know, uh, pretty, pretty crazy. Like, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'll give you another example. I, I, this goes back, it dates me because this has to do with VHS tapes. And I was working in Singapore. This is when I was living in Singapore and I was working with Chinese companies and other Asian companies. And, you know, you had this big manufacturer, not big, but manufacturer of VHS tapes and they were selling to the U S and we were talking about that. And, I, I was like, and they wanted to expand into the U.S. And I said, well, how are you selling the tapes into the U.S. today? And they said, well, it, it's my uncle. He lives in the U.S. and we uh, sell the tapes to him and he resells. And there's actually a, uh, uh, I think it was a revenue ruling that says if you, you know, sell and resell, you don't have a, you don't have a, uh, uh, a, a tax problem. And I think to some degree, uh, that is something that you could rely on and your um, idea to, uh, se separate the inventory in into the uh, separate U.S. corporation LLC, or sorry, a C corporation, or an LLC treated as a C corporation. Um, but I, I think that there are a, a lot of different uh, setups, you know, a lot of different arrangements that people use. Uh, and at the end of the day, you know, even if you had the inventory in the U.S. warehouse and you had a treaty not all of the income from that sale would be subject to tax. The treaty tells you that that amount of income should be based on what that activity uh, would, would command in the way of transfer pricing. So a lot of people feel like these trader business issues or permanent establishment issues really come down to transfer pricing. Are you properly transfer pricing, getting back to what you said? Yeah. And if I am and I'm paying that tax in the U.S. anyway, there's nothing more to collect from the foreign person. Uh, and, and I think that is uh, something on your side. Yeah. So I I'd definitely say, understand why that can be a viable recommendation. Yeah. For, I mean, we're, you know, we're not, again, we're talking, how can the argue, IRS argue transfer pricing for services when this person does all of the services? Like, obviously, he's worth the money if he does all of it. And then how do you argue transfer pricing for values of services? You know, because it's all independent, all unique businesses. It's all, it's completely stuff. Like, to find 10 other examples of someone doing the exact same operation that they're doing is going to be hard enough in its own. Uh, but in terms of transfer pricing for sales of goods and services, I might, I, I finally can reference some experience. I, I used to work for a large, uh, a, a, a mid-sized Italian firm, and we did all the luxury Italian uh, clothing and, you mm. know, all that stuff. And those are huge transfer pricing cases. And we actually had a, a case settled with a, a company that was doing hundreds of millions of sales every year. The IRS came and I got them with the transfer pricing and you'll find this interesting. They, they made them uh, recognize a mandatory percentage of sales as revenue 
uh, and we had a, an M1 adjustment based on the IRS uh, ruling. So we had to, had to have like a 3% margin uh, mm-hmm. recognized mm-hmm. in the U.S. for a certain number of years. The NOLs were wiped out. It was They were really aggressive with this uh, transfer pricing ruling. And it, I mean, it's a huge, again, this is a huge company and, and it's for selling $800 t-shirts. Like, where where you the the value and the tra- it's like a huge issue in there. So I've seen I've seen the extreme of transfer pricing, and then it's and then you got to compare it with services. It's tough, but transfer pricing as a whole is an, an entirely different call, and I don't think it applies as much when you're selling direct to consumer, which is what most of these people are doing is they're selling direct to consumer, not to a subsidiary uh, manufacturer. You know, like where you're manufacturing and selling to a related party. So that's, I mean, it's a little more rare in the scope of what, who I'm working with is smaller into entrepreneurs. It's more of like a really bigger scale issue, but it's, it's the only thing that would apply in these cases, right? I mean, Jim, we could do a couple hour video on transfer pricing. It is a <laughs> huge global issue. I've, I've heard it one time, and this goes back a number of years, like 70% of all of the dollars involved in active controversy were transfer pricing determinations. Yeah, I, I, I believe it. I believe it. Because these are big ticket. You know, these can be very big ticket. Yes, the, the IRS doesn't like house to house, you know, combat. But at the same time, the numbers here are so big. And they can uh, see on the tax return, like if you sell, if you're in retail and your sales are 10 million up, you're an automatic target. Like they, They're so easy to find these people, you know, because there's no hiding the sales. You know, you yeah, gotta, no, it goes back to that um, study the IRS did or where they looked at sales tax information, they looked at customs importation information, they looked at bank transfers. It's going to be easier to do now with artificial intelligence and they're, they're ramping up, you know, getting more money maybe from uh, from the, from the uh, well, they're getting a, a portion or allotted more money, $80, $80 billion potentially to upgrade their systems and, and hire more people that know how to operate those systems and uh, I, I think that, um, but but again, it doesn't change the policy of the U.S. being friendly to uh, people who effectively aren't uh, spending time in the U.S. for selling products or services or whatever. It's it's a high level conversation we're having, but it's so hard for me to not jump into a specifics because it's just what I, this is what you know you're interested in this stuff too. So it's a good conversation. But the the answer is still the same as all the other calls. If you're doing your services from outside the U.S. and you're running it all there, no, nothing here, no effectively connected income, no taxes in the U.S., it's still the same answer. There's a, a lot of nuances and things to kind of be aware of as your business grows and scales. But, you know, as you can see, watching this conversation, hearing it's it's just a, the IRS is a mess still. And uh, they don't have the budget to cho- uh, chase any of this stuff. And if they do decide to pursue it, you have case law on your side. So it's pretty, you know, the risk of being uh, audited are super low. And then you have the facts on your side. And in most of these scenarios, since the the scenarios are pretty straightforward. So, you know, there's always uh, with my private clients, I'm always helping them with different things. So questions and stuff. And based on the scale of most businesses, I'm not that expensive. Uh, so with at least in terms of my clients. So it's, um, it's, it's just a, a great time. Like you said, the title here, damn, it's good to be a non-resident, right? And selling to the U.S. Just, and, and I think there's one more thing we should um, reinforce, Jim, and you talk about it all the time. You've got videos exclusively on this topic, but make sure you file your information returns. Oh, uh, yeah. Because you're talking about, you know, $10,000 penalties, $25,000 penalties, whatever, that is a moneymaker for the IRS. They're enforcing more of those information reporting penalties now. And they have to be started, right? Because in the past, I have people coming up. I had a client who commented, or a client, someone commented in the video that they talked to their accountant. He said he's filed hundreds of 5472s late and never has gotten a penalty. And I think that's, they're, they're going to flip a switch one of these days and, and just like start checking that fax line and whatever forms come in late without an extension, they're going to just assess the penalties and send them out. It can happen today. It can happen tomorrow. It hasn't happened yet for at least for the, the informational reportings for the foreign owned single member LLCs. But, but I know certainly if you e-file the corporate return late with a 5472 in it, they'll, they'll email you that letter. They'll mail you that letter right away. I know for corporate returns, they will do it. I've seen a lot of them. Um, not from my returns, but from people who come to me asking for a penalty abatement help. But from the single member LLCs, it's, they haven't really been assessing stuff yet. But, you know, it's any day now they can just flip the switch and start doing it. And then that's a whole, uh, we can have a whole nother, a whole additional, I say whole nother, that's bad English. We can have an additional call about that as well, just uh, later about 
what happens if you get assessed penalties on this LLC? Does it pass you personally? Do you even have to pay it? You just close your LLC, you know, like who, who knows? <laughs> yeah, but that's, uh, I think that's one thing, you know, that, that people might come away from the call feeling good about the income taxes, but also need to be very aware that that's not where the story starts and stops that you've got sales taxes, you've got uh, information reporting to file, you've well, got that, concerns well, about inventory, maybe. Yeah, the sales taxes and the inventory are big for the e-commerce, but for service providers, so many of my clients are blown away that there's no VAT taxes or sales taxes on service for, on services. So I have clients, that's what, actually, that's probably what people are most surprised about now recently, especially with my Latin American Spanish calls and my Tu Empresa en America channel. And, you know, it's, it's, it's cool. It's a good, it's a great place to have a company. I say there's no reason not to have a U.S. company if you're not from here. You'll figure out a use for it eventually. Uh, but I don't know how much time we have left, Peter. We've been on the, doing a long, long video, right? An hour and a half. <laughs> I think there are probably only three people still watching. So yeah, right. probably uh, a good time to drop off. <laughs> no, thank you so much for, um, you know, doing another one of these calls with me. I love it every time. I'm taking notes. I'm learning stuff too. You have more experience than I do. And I think we have a, a good collaboration here. So, you know, anytime you want, you want to talk about stuff, let's, let's do it. Let's schedule a call and, and, put it out there help some people hopefully all right well thanks jim I, I really enjoy your videos and i know that a lot of people you're you're really helping them you know helping them achieve their dreams um appreciate yeah. it yeah thanks peter we'll be in touch and thank you everyone who's watching the the videos and stuff like subscribe check out peter's channel i'll put it in the description below they have a, a lot of great information as well probably more technical less conversational but it's uh they're all good channels to follow okay see you everyone thank you